And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on September 30th, 2022. Anel Amons is an ISA certified arborist and an ISA certified arborist utility specialist. She has a bachelor's degree in biology from the University of North Carolina at Asheville and a master of horticulture science through North Carolina State University. Anel works as a contract utility arborist and spends her free time gardening, hiking, and writing children's adventure books. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Anel. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've known you for quite a number of years now through Garden Communicators, and I do not know your path and how you got to become a utility arborist specialist. And I think that's (laughs) quite amazing. Um, It's something that you wouldn't hear uh, maybe 20 years ago that women were involved with. And now there's women popping up in this specialty all over the place. And we can't wait to hear about what you do and how that affects our trees and tree planting and maybe not tree planting and why. So tell us. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, well, I didn't know utility arborist was a thing until I stumbled into it either. I'd never heard of it. And I don't know if, if they had come to my college or my high school, I don't know if sitting at a table would have interested me. But um, I got my undergrad degree in botany and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was like, I like plants. So got a degree in plants. And then I didn't use it for 12 years. I beat myself up for 12 years. Like I'm not using my degree. I don't know what I want to do with myself. So I like to share that with people because eventually you'll figure out what you want to do. (laughs) It might be 12 years down the road, but I stayed home with my kids for eight years. And then I decided I wanted to kind of rebuild my skills to re-enter the workforce and I became a certified beekeeper, sort of explored some different options. And then I stumbled into the Master Gardener program. And in North Carolina, it's an extensive training for volunteers, but you get a, you stay for months and you train and then you're a volunteer in the community to educate people. But it was through that, that I realized that horticulture was my passion. And I decided to go back to school for grad school. And I went to NC State and did my master's in horticulture online, which was really cool uh, because I didn't have to uproot my family and move. (laughs) Right. I did a lot of work in nurseries. And, you know, I learned about a lot about trees then too, but I was more focused on nurseries. And my goal when I got out was to teach people 
horticulture. And so I did work with Cooperative Extension for a couple of years and I taught gardening and I taught good tree care and a lot of different things. People will call with questions about trees. So that's really kind of got back into the tree side of like, you know, what what's going on with these. And while I was in Cooperative Extension, stumbled into a training randomly one day and, and it was chainsaw safety. And I thought it was just a day to get out of the office. But she was like, at the end of this, y'all are all going to go out and you're going to teach chainsaw safety. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to do. And I remember she turned to me because it was it was an outdoor field day event also. And she turned to me at one point and we were talking and, and she said, well, you're an arborist. I said, no, I'm not an arborist. She said, well, then be one. Like, go take the exam. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and that was like a moment for me where it's like sometimes people have to look at us and say, you should just do that. I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So I did. I had enough experience to be able to take the exam, become a certified arborist. I just had to sit down and, and do it. So I did that. And then when I left my position at the Cooperative Extension, it ended up not working out well for me. And so I left and I didn't know where I was going to go. And I was sort of exploring different options. And that's how I found this utility arborist position. And I'm not sure I even knew 100% what the job was when I took it. But they wanted an arborist and I was excited by that because I was like, I'm an arborist and they're excited by it. So <laughs> I decided to try it. Um, ended up really, really loving it. And so when you've been in utilities for a year and you are a certified arborist, then you can apply to take the exam to get the, the secondary certification. And so we have you know the basic arborist skills that you would have for a certified arborist, but also adding that safety component of how does this work with electrical grid? How do we keep the public safe? And how can we get these trees down safely? We also work with storms. We have a lot of storm prep in that um, educational component too. So that's kind of ended up where I am. That's that's a really interesting background. And it's a very broad background too. One of the things that we're listening to right now, our podcast is always pre-recorded, is that the uh, storm and how it's moving up into your area, Hurricane Ian. And how are you preparing for that with utility specialist? Yeah, we staged people, I guess, the end of last week ahead of the storm. The company I work with, we have a bunch down in Florida also. So we were ready to prepare to support those people down there. So we staged some crews closer down to that area. But we also kept our resources here because we knew early on that there was a high likelihood that this storm is going to come through North Carolina also. So we didn't want to send everything away. So we had to look at that ahead of time. Where are the resources going to be needed? But also, what do we need to keep for ourselves? Because we want to be able to, to spread out. Like, we're looking at a lot of flooding where we are. So everybody was like, make sure you get your equipment out of a flood zone, you know, <laughs> things like that. That sometimes kind of you don't think of on a regular basis. Let's make sure that we can get to our equipment. But we always take a, a heavy safety focus. So we want to get the power back on. You know, we want everybody to have their power, but we don't want to lose any of our people in the process. So we're always trying to, to figure out where can we keep our people safe? And, you know, if it's not safe for us to be out, we're going to be staged and ready. But we want to wait until, you know, it is safe to get out there and start working with those, getting them off the lines. So to be clear, Anel, your crews are responding primarily to homeowners and businesses, right? You're going to hope at this point that the main grid is left alone. Is that right? Well, we, we always hope the main grid is left alone. My department specifically is transmission. So we are that big grid. Oh. Um, we don't work with the homeowners. Um, I mean, we will support if we if we really need to. But for the most part, we're trying to get that big grid back on. So we're looking at, yeah, those big lines. And, and if there's tree outages, tree-related outages, trying to get those back up and going so we can get the smaller grids going. <laughs> So can you give our listeners a quick overview of how that main transmission system works in terms of its primary service to the, the smaller systems? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the transmission is going to be basically the big, big power lines. You'll see them kind of across the interstate and stuff, and they're out of the generation facilities. So the steam plants and the solar plants, all those places, and they're bringing those massive amounts of electricity out across into substations. So at a town or we'll have tie stations where it'll it'll tie in with other generation facilities. So if one goes down, they can tie in together and get that out to people where they need it. So then they'll hit those substations in towns. And then that's where it picks up on the distribution system. And those are the lines we see running to our homes and to our smaller businesses, those smaller units. The power on the transmission is coming from generation out to that community. And then the community, the distribution lines are taking and distributing it around the community. So what's the most likely scenario for a portion of the transmission line getting compromised? Is is it just going to be a tree falling on it or is is flooding a factor as well? Flooding sometimes is a factor. What we see a lot is flooding in, you know, we've had some really phenomenal flooding recently because of this kind of climate shifting thing. We're seeing these big floods and also because as we develop and we have that impenetrable surface, we've got parking lots and roofs and all that water's got to go somewhere. So it's filling those creeks. And so creeks that we have seen that would have a couple inches in it now will go out six feet high and the trees on the sides of those banks can't handle that. And so we're seeing that flooding affect those trees falling in on the lines or hitting the lines. Very rarely have I heard recently of anything, you know, flooding and taking out the towers. They're usually pretty secure, good positions most of the time. But I mean, that is that is something that could be affected. But outages, number one outage is, is tree related, unfortunately. And we try to keep with our, our transmission grid, we try to keep the trees under the lines out of there. But we still have trees that can fall in at any time, blow in at any time. So there's a lot of trees out there. <laughs> right, right. And I I just want to jump back to the credential that you earned after you became a certified arborist. Is it called utility specialist? Yeah, it's called certified arborist utility specialist. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I have a feeling that there's a segment of our listeners that are going to be intrigued and, you know, might be working in another sector of the industry. How do they prepare for that exam? Uh, For that exam, uh, usually you've got to have if you're already a certified arborist, you have to have a year in utilities or you can even be eligible to take the exam. If you are not a certified arborist, I believe there's a four or six years somewhere in there, I don't know the exact number, of years in utilities. So you would need to be working in utilities and show that to ISA, which is International Society of Arboriculture, that you have that background and that experience. And then once they approve you, take the exam. There's there's usually a study guide that covers a lot of it, but a lot of it is on on the job training, working out there with crews, working with those line clearance crews and and understanding electrical grid. There's actually a lot of questions about electrical equipment, electrical grid, and how those trees interact with that because electricity can come through trees. So that's that's important and understanding we talk a lot about MAD, minimum approach distance. So is this tree in that minimum approach distance and going to be a danger to me and my crew is it far enough? How can I measure that? Uh, always being aware of those those hazards. So there's a lot, of, like I said, safety component that's involved in that and understanding that. Sure. Yeah, I could see, uh, I know trees can be completely energized in the event of a failure. And then I'm, I'm thinking floodwaters could even carry a charge. Yeah, I mean, the ground. We talked to you about step potential. So if it's touching the ground, it can even get in the ground. You know, if we see a lie down, we 100% assume that it is live no matter what. 
And so we've had linemen come out from the line side and they have tested it, they've tagged it, and they have it before our crews can even approach and get near it. Interesting. I think globally this is important because people in our international audience, you know, we have our system here in the United States, but every country has their own type of power grid that they deal with and and the utility specialists are trained for their particular types of systems that they have, right? Isn't that how it works? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's different. Yeah. Well, I was listening on the news this morning because of the hurricane. They were talking about um, electrocution through from trees and wires in the water, but also the number one a killer at this time, it's not the hurricane, it's the chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people don't realize the implications of a chainsaw and how many people do get killed bodily from holding it wrong, using it wrong, not being trained properly, and cutting life and limb. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was taking that chainsaw safety training class, I learned that some countries you have to have a license, like we have a driver's license before you can buy a chainsaw. And some days I'm just amazed that you can just walk out and buy one and, you know, go chop yourself up. (laughs) Yeah. And that's true. That's that's yeah. very true. There's things that we have here in the United States that all that should be regulated, but they're not. Right. And, and we need to have a license for car, but some of these big things like a chainsaw, you could just wheel that how whatever way you want. And, right. And and it definitely, I've seen people with legs and torsos uh, injured using a chainsaw. So it's really important. Uh, for our listeners to know too, and anyone else out there that is going to be using a chainsaw to make sure you're trained. So some of the stories that you tell through our Garden Communicators page, I was absolutely shocked when you were telling the story about the wild pigs that were after you. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought "Mm, that might be an interesting story to share with our listeners because not everybody knows that the United States has lots of wild pigs. I know we have them out in the West, but not in the South. Most people don't even know that. We even have them here in, in Pennsylvania, wild pigs. So can you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I was surprised to find wild pigs. I, you know, I'm from North Carolina. I've lived here most of my life. And I think there aren't quite as many in North as South Carolina. This was in South Carolina at the time. But one of the cool things about this job is that I go out and I see some of the coolest places on earth. You know, I'm on private property, but, you know, ravines and some of the beautifulest places. And so a ton of wildlife also. So on on this particular occasion, I was checking behind a substation and they had built a, we call it a stormwater containment system. So when it rains, all the water that hits that substation goes into this sort of designed pond to be held. So it doesn't just run off into the lake, beside a lake. And no one had told us that this was there. And then they said, oh, by the way, this stormwater system is there. Have you been cutting it? And we were like, well, we didn't, we didn't know it was there. So I went out to review it and see what it looked like. It was supposed to be mowed grass. And it had probably been there a good five, six years, and no one had ever been to it. So there were pine trees growing throughout the whole thing, taller than my head, just, just a little bit taller than my head, and very, very thick. So I couldn't, couldn't see a whole lot of what was going on. And I, I was walking down, kind of trying to review the edges of this pond and figure out where it was. And first I, I saw some poop on the ground and I was like, that's kind of looks like deer. Uh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> and then I smelled a funny smell. Like, I don't know what that smell is. That's, that's kind of funky. 
But I just kept going and I took a couple more steps and started pushing through these pines. And I started hearing all this scrubbing noise. And I was like, that's really, really odd. I don't, I don't know what that is because usually a deer, if you scare them, they'll get up and run off. They don't kind of hang out, you know? And so I, I took another step and I heard like a snort and deer will also snort at you. But again, they'll usually snort and then run off. Like I saw you and, and then run off. So I was like, something is not right here. I'm hearing this and I couldn't see anything through these pine trees. So I started clapping my hands really loud and just yelling, hey, who's in there? And I grabbed one of the pine trees and started shaking it around. And then I just heard noise all around me, like just <sighs> all this movement of trees and stuff. And I still couldn't see anything. I was like, what is going on? So I started to kind of move toward the, the way the pond was built. I was up on the wall of it. And down in the bottom of the pond where the water would settle, there was a little bit less trees had really established in there. So I was like, let me move down in there and see what is going on. And then I looked off to my left and I heard one animal running away. And I was like, okay, is that the deer? And I looked. And down the ravine and up the other side was about a 300-pound hog running off away from me. And that's when I was like, oh, man, there's everything around me is hogs. Like, <laughs> must be what is out here. And so I was like, all right, let me get down into this pond and get a better view of what's going on. And when I stepped down in there, uh, I was able to see about 30. And that, that's all I could see because there was tons of them in there. But about 30 hogs of different sizes, kind of like small hog size, all the way down to little pink piglets. They were running circles around the mamas, I guess. And... So that's when I was like, you know what? I got to get out of here because I'm not prepared to deal with hogs. And so I made it up to the, the substation fence and skirted my way out and got out of there. But yeah, that was, that was an interesting encounter. Um, and now I know what that smell is. <laughs> I smell it again. <laughs> what a story. Yeah. And people don't realize how dangerous hogs can be. I mean. Yes. Yeah. That's what I, well, and I, I don't know a whole lot about hogs. I know that a mama it feels like her baby's endangered is going to be very dangerous no matter what she is. And that's when I was like, I'm getting out of here. Yes. <laughs> Even when I was a little kid, they would say, whatever you do, don't play near the pig pen. Because if they're hungry, it might be dinner. <laughs> yeah. You might be dinner. So, <laughs> geez. <laughs> well, a month ago, um, it seems like, you know, fall and uh, the weather has changed so dramatically, Anel. But we did want to ask you about the spring and the summer and the growing season for vegetation. What type of vegetation can you grow under power lines and still keep things green? Are there planting schematics that you use that are low maintenance and not, you know, trees that need to get pruned every three years? Right. Yeah, if you're looking in your, in your yard at your kind of distribution lines, there's going to be different rules there and, and they're going to be kind of based usually around the municipality or the state, whoever's regulating those utilities. But a lot of times those utilities are put across your property at, you know, as a courtesy to have a utility. So you kind of can still put the things there that you want. I usually recommend people pick things that aren't going to grow tall enough to ever interact with it. That's close to that line and putting shrubs. Like if you need a barrier instead of a tree, maybe a tall that's going to kind of top up around six, eight feet, like rhododendron, things like that. If you're going to put a tree, also remember that if you're putting it, you know, near, it's going to end up growing toward those lines also, and they're going to have to trim those back. And we try to keep, you know, good, even if they're not certified arborists, folks who are well-trained on how to make good cuts, but that doesn't mean that the people that come through to do your utility maintenance are going to be trained. And so you're kind of running that risk too. If they're going to come cut it, are they going to butcher your tree and end up killing it? So you're looking at putting new things out there. I, you know, recommend kind of keeping them away from those utilities so that nobody needs to come and, and deal with them and, and upset you, that sort of thing. So 
Yeah. Like I said, I look at more of like shrubs and, and flowering, flowering shrubs and herbaceous things, things like that, low growing. Yeah, rhododendron sounds pretty nice. I mean, I guess it can be a formidable thicket unto itself and be a good habitat for, as we've just learned, for hogs. <laughs> Nobody has those running around their neighborhood, but. <laughs> you know, you had a really beautiful picture online of under power lines, and I thought it was really poignant where you said, you know, you don't have to see things sprayed. You don't have to see trees under those power lines, but you can have these beautiful pollinator meadows that are ideal for underneath power lines. And I thought, you know, nobody really talks about that. No one talks about the fact that, okay, we we need to have you know, a 40-foot clearance for our, our towers or however many feet it is. And that whole swath can be planted with native wildflowers and trees don't have to be there. Right. And yet it doesn't have to be sprayed like that that nasty-looking brown dead material that you <laughs> see um, along our roadways here in Pennsylvania, which is, you know, really disgusting looking. But to have something like that is is pretty amazing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I mentioned earlier, I work in transmission. So and everybody's electrical grid is done a little bit different. Ours is we run, the transmission runs across private property, but we have an easement. And that allows us to have the power lines there, allows us to maintain the power lines. And there's some regulations there. And one of those is uh, we don't allow trees that would mature over 15 feet. So in your yard, you know, no big deal. You guys, that's not going to be a problem. But as it runs through, I mean, everybody's backcountry, farms, woods, all these things, there are areas that people aren't, they're not maintaining those trees. And so we do have to kind of come through and maintain them. And and, and I know you're, you're talking about where they spray and just kind of hit everything. And we do herbicide in those areas to maintain those trees where people are not maintaining that area. But we use a selective herbicide treatment. So our guys have, they have a backpack and they're trained. This is a tree. This is going to problem. You know, this is an elderberry. We're not going to spray it. It's never going to get big enough. Um, we don't spray the wildflowers. We don't spray the grasses. And so they do a walkthrough and, and they treat those trees. And, and there's tons of research actually up there in Pennsylvania with where you guys are. They've been doing research on transmission right-of-ways for over 60 years and the use of herbicide out there. And what they find is that when we treat those trees only, then the grasses and the wildflowers not only thrive, but they help hold back the seed bank of more trees coming out. So you get more and more wildflowers. We use less and less herbicide every year. And yeah, the, the picture you're referencing, I found it earlier this fall and the whole right away was just lit up yellow with wildflowers. And in the front of the picture, you can see some of the skeletons of the trees that were, were treated with herbicide in an earlier cycle. So there's still these little skeletons sticking out there, but you can see that the whole right away is full of wildflowers. And while I was standing out there, there were butterflies, there were bees, they were everywhere. So you can see over time that as we, we treat those trees out there, you know, yeah, we are putting out a little bit of herbicide, but then those wildflowers are thriving and we have that pollinator highways, just like long highways of flowers and habitat. And we also find that one of the research components that they've been doing up there in Pennsylvania is that biodiversity is increased when we do that because you've got that awesome woodsy ecosystem and you've got all the animals and the, the plants that are in that woods ecosystem, but you have a totally different set when you have those wildflowers and those grasses, that different prairie land. So you're building that that stronger biodiversity. That's great. 
it's great to listen to this, you know, and Eva had mentioned, and I guess you affirm, uh, Anel, that meadows with wildflowers can be a thing. In other words, are the power companies buying in on this as enthusiastically as the three of us on this screen are? Or is it a hard sell? No, absolutely. Um, because like I mentioned, like when, when we get those wildflower, I mean, not only is that a bonus for all of us, we've got the bees and the flower, you know, butter and everything, but if it's keeping those trees out of check, there's no reason for us to come back. So, you know, from a maintenance standpoint, that's phenomenal, like to not have to worry about coming through and bringing it, you know, some people are like, Donya's herbicide, I want you to cut it. Well, I've got to bring in this big industrial machinery. I'm using, you know, gasoline, I'm using hydraulic fluid and all these things. So if we're not bringing that at all, and, you know, over time, almost no herbicide, then, you know, our impact is way down and, you know, it's keeping us safer and then we're putting out less, you know, less footprint out there as well. But then we've also got this beautiful meadows out there that, that we can restore. And we've actually, I know here in North Carolina, we've got several spots where some rare and endangered species are living out there in those right-of-ways where we have removed that competition. So we're seeing some pretty cool side effects and I think it's benefiting all of us really. Yeah, so that, that includes perennials as well as woodies that are in danger? Yeah, yeah. Like we found several spots, Georgia Aster, and there's some um, endangered sunflowers we've been finding out there also, where those those are kind of prairie species, so they wouldn't have made it if we let the trees grow up. They would have shaded them back out again. But now that we've opened that up, and they're able to thrive out there. So That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we're the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, but open meadow and prairie landscape, if you will, is every bit as important for carbon sequestration. So this is heartening news. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we like seeing that balance between, you know, you've still got the forest on the side, Yeah. you know, but, but we're balancing both of them, which, you know, kind of best of both worlds sort of thing. It's kind of like a super highway almost with, with the powers and the, and the meadow underneath. It's, it's a easy fly zone for, for pollinators too. It, it is. Yeah. It's, it's really something I wasn't expecting when I started this job was walking out there and seeing so many wildflowers, so much, because you sit in town and, and you go to garden classes and stuff we talk about all the time, you know, the pollinators are pollinators because you don't see that impact. But I, you know, I started going out in these right-of-ways and I was like, man, there's flowers everywhere. Like we're, we're not as dire straits as it feels like you sit in town. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and it also makes everything safer for everyone living in your power zone because you don't have to do as much maintenance, but you also are keeping those lines clear so that there's not going to be a problem in the future because you're you're looking ahead rather than being reactive. You're being proactive. And we've talked uh, with Ed Gilman about that, how important proaction is and, and saves not only power, but also saves lives when when you think about it. And and I think that's really a heroic effort on on the utilities part for for being able to do that. Do you, by any chance, encourage uh, tree planting in other areas? Does your company get involved in tree planting in other areas where they might be removing a lot of uh, trees because of power lines? Are they involved in tree programs with universities or nonprofits? 
Um, yeah, I mean, we all got into this because we love trees. Yeah, so we're out there to try to get rid of all of them. Um, but we're trying to, to work some different programs about, yeah, like you said, like putting trees in other places also, um, trying to keep them away. And we do a lot of education. You know, this tree is not approved in here, but, you know, here's a different, some of our taller lines, we can do things like red buds and dogwoods because, you know, they don't mature that high. So um, we try to work with people with that also. And and try to get that good education out there. Like these are these are species that are really good, but also, you know, if you want that tree, maybe let's put it over here on the other side of the yard, that sort of thing. And we work a lot with some of our local county parks and recreation places and helping them with, you know, maintaining their right-of-ways, but also, like you said, like trying to encourage those, those trees in other areas. And I know some of the city municipalities, like we have to take a tree out. They want us to plant one somewhere else. So, <laughs> okay, but we're going to put it on the other side of the park so we don't have to come back and cut this one again, you know? <laughs> Right. Now, do you have affiliation with nurseries too, or? I don't know of any that I've, where we, we've, I mean, we have, some people have nurseries under our line, so we work with them, you know, if you're growing wow. those trees, you're going to dig them up, then that's fine. We're not going to, you know, but we, we got to keep that partnership, like we're going to come back if these trees are getting too big, something's got to give, you know. <laughs> sure, um, sure. But that is a potential place for nurseries to, to grow young trees. It is. Yeah. Um, I, we do see several of those and we see a lot of agriculture. Like, you know, if you want to put your cornfield in there, they're great. Cause that's not going to ever affect the power grid. <laughs> right. And I see like some people put like the plots out, you know, just put kind of oats, grasses, whatever they grow for their, you know, the deer and put it out in there too. So there's all kinds of growing opportunities, just as long as it's not going to grow up tall enough to, to interact with those lines. So here's my tongue in cheek question for you. And <laughs> Since we've all grown up in America and learned, heard these stories, the high power tension lines, do they affect vegetation in terms of growth rate, distortion? You know how you, you've heard those stories about the high cancer rates near transmission lines and stuff like that. Have you ever noticed like corn looking weird or <laughs> any other manifestation that gets regularly attributed to high power lines? I have never seen anything like that, okay. no. Good. Um, <laughs> Good to hear. Um, and I have we... walked through some very healthy cornfields. I tell you what, trying to push through those to get to the other side. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, nice. I, I haven't really heard anything like that. And I don't, I mean, the trees are going to grow toward the lines, but that's because that's the open space where the sun is. Right. Um, yeah, so that's naturally going to happen. I don't think yeah. it's affected by the electricity in any way that I've not seen any research toward it. So... Well, there is there is research out there on on how uh, high high power affects people in general, and um, I think those white papers are important, and that has um, proven in some cases where people need to be, in other words, ha don't have a house near a power line or mm -hmm. shift it over, don't have it directly underneath the power line, obviously. But you know, I think science is still working on that, and I think. That's something that we need to be mindful of. We can we can laugh about having weird, but you know, a year's worth of corn is not going to be uh, like someone being underneath a power line for life. You know, it's totally right. different. It's a lot of electrons. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And the other thing I learned very recently, I feel like some of this information is coming at us so fast. But and you had mentioned that your system in North Carolina is moving electricity that's been generated by solar, but transmission lines are always gonna be part of the landscape. You know, mm -hmm. if we all go to solar, if we all go to wind, 
there's still going to be transmission lines and there's still going to be trees wanting to grow. It doesn't matter where the electricity is coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I heard uh, this was uh, Jesse Jenkins who led scientists and wrote a paper called Net Zero America. And they talked about transmission lines at length and that as part of Build Back Better and where our country needs to go, lots of new transmission lines have to be erected and constructed as well because you got to bring the uh, electricity in from the solar farms and the wind farms and they don't even exist yet. So Right. And one last question. I, I, I'm always, California, when you think about your colleagues in California doing similar work, any contrasts or comparisons you can uh, share in terms of, seems like the grid and the power company out there has really got its hands hands full. I mean, arguably the front line of, well, I mean, you're going through it today in North Carolina with, with the hurricane, but the, the nonstop fires and the uh, transmission lines being blamed. How do you contrast that? How, 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 what, what's your thought stream on that? Mm. Yeah, I don't know a ton about, you know, the transmission lines being blamed for. I know that, that they do have a lot of, issues with, you know, with wildfire fires and my company work, you know, we're all the way across the country. And so we have constant training about, you know, turn off your truck, don't park it in grass, you know, (laughs) because anything can start a wildfire out there. And and over here, we sort of roll our eyes because we're like, the grass is green and happy and a warm truck isn't going to catch it on fire over here. But out there, you know, a little bit of anything can kind of catch something on fire. So they have to be very vigilant. So I'm, I'm sure it's it's a lot for them to keep track of. And, yeah. And yeah, they have, they have a lot of fires compared to what we see here in North Carolina. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's very brown out there. Yeah. Well, I think that, that that just that little bit of information that you just imparted is, is critical because not everybody really thinks about how hot their car is when they pull into a, a grassy field or, um, and I, I kind of, kind of brought up a picture earlier that we were uh, at a family reunion out in Ohio and all the cars had come from long distances and we drove in and parked on our family's lawn. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking when we move our cars, there's going to be brown spots where we parked because (laughs) of the heat. And uh, sure enough, when we pulled out, there were brown spots. Um, And we just don't think about that. Yeah. We're just not taught to think that way, that engines are hot and they have the potential to spark fires. Even here in New Jersey, um, they tell you to be careful when you pull off the road because it can spark a fire. The needles from the uh, pine trees can get very dry. And of course, that, that heat from your engine can can start the fire. We're going to change the subject a little bit because we have to ask our famous question that we always ask on our podcast, what is your favorite tree or group of trees that you seem to be connected to? My favorite tree is the hemlock, which, you know, they suffered a lot of losses recently. So it's sort of sad to go up in the mountains now and you just see like whole dead mountainsides um, from the woolly adelgids that that attacked them. But um, that's just one that has always spoken to me. I just really enjoy them. I love, you know, you know, you have a hemlock because you turn it over, it's got like stripes on the bottom of the, the needles. So, and strangely, I don't have any in my yard. <laughs> but 
but I do live in the city. So it's, it's a bit of a big tree for a city tree. So it's funny because I post a lot of pictures of flowers. I love, I love to post pictures of flowers, but the conifers are actually, they hold my heart more than the flowers. So <laughs> Very nice. That's Very nice. nice. That is really nice. Well, thank you, Anel. It's been a great. It's been great to spend some time with you. I hope the your uh, immediate future in terms of storm response goes well, and that your crews stay safe. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. we're uh, waiting to see what's going to happen, but I think I think we're going to fare pretty decent this time. Hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> Very good. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time out and um, joining us. It was wonderful yeah. talking with you and and sharing a different a different angle to trees and, and how they, they affect our lives as humans. Yeah. 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 I've learned a lot. It's been great. Thanks. Anel. Thanks. Yeah. Appreciate y'all having me. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromeda and Recordings in Hollywood, California. Oh, my God.